There we go. We left off in John 14, uh, right around verse uh, 28 or 9, something like that. Um, and yeah, 27, actually. And so the backstory here is this is, even though we're, we've still got many chapters to go in, John, this is the night before the crucifixion. This is the upper room discourse, it's called. It's not found in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. John remembered these details uh, vividly. It's just hours before he's going to be arrested. There'll be seven trials. He'll be whipped, beaten, spit upon, nailed to a cross, die for your sins and mine, and then rise from the dead and uh, ascend to heaven eventually. But he gives his disciples a long private briefing where he's preparing them for what's ahead comforting them, even though he's the one that's going to die and suffer, comforting them because they're about to go through the hardest thing since they met him. Um, he's told them he's going to go away. They have an idea that Judas is the betrayer. Peter's going to deny him. They also found out. So that everything's in an upheaval for each of these 11 disciples. He's going to use, uh, he's going to talk about God and the devil as chapter 14 ends, oddly enough. And then in chapter 15, he's going to use an analogy from agriculture about vineyards, about vines, branches, and fruit, and the gardener who makes it all happen. So anyway, uh, we'll also see the, the whole lesson on abiding in him, staying, uh, remaining in him, and the connection between faith and obedience. Anyway, let's dive in. So I know that you're awake. Those of you that are here say, amen. amen. Oh, that was pretty good. And how about you on Zoom wave or say amen or hold up a sign that says amen. Very good. I see you, Bob. All right. Um, we're in John 14. Um, let's see. And he's just told them about the Holy Spirit and he'll be telling him more. Look, pick it up in verse 25. All this I've spoken while still with you. But the advocate or the comforter, the Holy Spirit, verse 26, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've said to you. That verse explains how these guys could remember the stories that they write in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the story, the dialogue, even this whole thing is remembered by John. I believe supernaturally that God almost shows him a videotape of it. And he's taking notes in a sense. Um, so in verse 27, um, some of the commentators, I never saw this before. In verse 27, you've all heard peace. I leave with you. My peace. I give you, I do not give as the world gives. I do, do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. Uh, I saw this this week and I hadn't seen it before. The commentaries brought out that when in the Old Testament, when someone is about to die, there's farewell speeches and there's sort of a reading of the will, if you will, where uh, to my friend Chris, I bequeath my, friend, my Mustang guitar and to, you know, Patty, I bequeath my home in the Bahamas or whatever. Jesus has, no, I wish, right? Jesus has nothing like that to give, right? But he's bequeathing to them some things. One is the Holy Spirit they're going to inherit, so to speak, as a result of his death. Another one is his peace. Notice verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. And that means peace that comes from him. We've talked before about peace being a two, 
uh, a word with a couple different meanings. One piece is the absence of war. We as sinners were at war with God, and now we are at peace because God has sent Jesus to pay the, the price for our sins so that the wall dividing us or the ceiling dividing us, you might say, which is our guilt and sin has been removed through faith in the Lord Jesus. So he's leaving him peace, the absence of war, but also peace, inner uh, tranquility and you know, peace kind of thing. I, he's leaving it with them. My peace I give to you. The same kind of peace he had when he was being nailed to a cross. He says, if you remember, and it's not what I would say, I had, would have some other choice words for people that beat me up and nailed me to a cross. What does he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Pretty amazing. He's leaving them his peace, supernatural peace, even in the turmoil they're going to be in, all the persecution they're going to go through, all of the scattering that's going to occur. He's leaving him his peace. He says, I don't give you as the world gives. What that means is the world cannot offer any peace. Now, the world advertises all kinds of things as things that will bring fulfillment, peace, um, you know, a purpose in life. But all the things the, the world values have something in common, and that is that they can be lost, stolen, or wear out. Whether it's your money or your good looks, I mean, look around the room, come on, it's wearing out, look at me. Your, your looks, your money, your fame will, it is all fleeting, right? And no matter how many houses in the Bahamas you have, it's all gonna burn eventually and you can't take it with you. There's the old saying that when there's a hearst with a dead body in it, there's never a trailer hitch with a U-Haul trailer because the guy can't take all his stuff with him. So everything that gives peace to people te temporarily on planet Earth is um, stuff that can wear out, be stolen, or be lost, as opposed to Jesus Christ and the salvation he gives doesn't wear out, can't be lost, no one can take it from you. John 10, he says, I hold believers in my hand. The father holds believers in his hand. No one can snatch them out of our hands. I'm paraphrasing, but that's around verse 27 or 28 of John 10. So he's leaving peace. Now in the Jewish culture, we said last week, the word shalom means peace. And it's sort of like, if you ever been to Hawaii, it's like aloha. It's just a greeting. It can be hello. It can mean goodbye. Um, and they used it both ways. It's interesting. He's leaving. He's going to die very soon and be arrested soon. So he's using it in the salutation of goodbye, in a sense, his peace, shalom. It's interesting when he rises from the dead, Luke 24 and elsewhere, the first thing he says when he shows up, because they're afraid, they think they're seeing a ghost. What does he say? Peace be with you. Shalom. Again, as a greeting, hello again, I'm back kind of thing. It's kind of cool. Um, so, yeah, he's, he is, by the way, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 speaks of the Messiah and says he'll be called Prince of Peace. The only one that can create real peace with God and real inner uh, peace as well. Eventually, Christ will return to planet Earth to reign with actual peace on earth. And I mean peace, the absence of all war for a thousand years, a millennium. Revelation 20 talks about it. He will reign on planet earth where there will be him in control only, Christ Jesus reigning and us reigning with him. But 
we're not here to study Revelation. Thank God, may I say. Anyway, tough book to study. Um, so later on, he's going to bequeath to them, besides his peace, his love and his joy. We'll see in, the, in these chapters that come after this. But this is supernatural peace. Have you ever seen the bumper sticker that says, no Jesus, no peace, no Jesus, no peace. You say, why does it repeat it? Because it's K-N-O-W, no Jesus, K-N-O-W, no peace. Below that, it says, no Jesus, N-O, Jesus, N-O, peace. No Jesus, no peace. Kind of a cool play on words. Um, the things that we consider so valuable cannot give us lasting peace because they can be lost, stolen, or wear out. That includes some really good things I didn't mention. This might shock you. And that is family members, friends. They can't bring lasting peace because we can lose them. I've lost a couple of family members, more than a few. They can be lost. We'll see them again if they're believers. Jesus Christ is the one thing we can hold on to forever once we believe. Let's keep reading. Um, I don't give you as the world gives. I'm still in 27. Do not let your hearts be troubled. That's how the chapter starts. Don't let them. Meaning what? That you control where your mind goes. Don't let it go there. Concentrate on Christ. Pray when you're feeling down, when you're feeling like your hearts are about to be troubled. He knows what's about to happen to them. They're all going to be scattered. They're going to see their Lord beat up and arrested, and it's going to be very tough for them. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't fear not. Don't be afraid. Verse 28. This is interesting. You heard me say I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. Now, he said that earlier in chapter 14. Do you remember that? Um, he says around verse uh, four or three, and I go to prepare a place for you and and if I go to prepare a place for you, sorry, I'll come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going, remember? And then Thomas says, well, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And that's when he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. One of the seven I am states statements. So back to verse 20, 28, he's reminding them, you heard me say I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. So it makes no sense to them. He means going away, I'm going to be arrested. Uh, I'm going to be killed. And it's going to be three dark days. But on the third day, I'm going to rise and come back to you and appear to you. That's what he means. In the ultimate sense, he also means I'm going to go to the Father and disappear from planet Earth visibly, tangibly. But I will return with the second coming um, to take you to be with me. Uh, that's also in the earlier parts of this chapter. I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you'd be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Two things. Number one, he can tell, he's telling them he's leaving and they're bummed out. They're, they need comfort. They think this is all over. I gave up my whole life, my fishing business, my friend, other friends, and I've invested three years in this and you're going away? This is it? They're very surprised at that. But he's telling them, if you loved me, you'd be glad because I'm going to the face of God in heaven. It's a joyous thing. So don't mourn. You can mourn that you miss me, he's saying, but rejoice for where I am. Very similar situation. If you've lost a loved one like I have, um, who was a believer, on the one hand, it's extremely sad, and you miss the person, and you mourn that they're not going to be around anymore. 
And at the same time, you rejoice that they're out of pain or they're in heaven with the Lord. Absolutely two extreme emotions. It's interesting. Death has no sting for a believer. Um, So he's saying, if you understood, you'd be glad because I'm going to the father. Now, here's the statement that some people have a problem with. We're going to look at it because we've talked about the Trinity a lot in chapter 14 and elsewhere in the gospel of John. He says, for the father is greater than I. Do you see that there? So there are those that look at that and say, okay, so the Trinity is wrong. Jesus can't be God because he just said the Father is greater than he is. What does that mean? Okay, because the doctrine of the Trinity, quickly to review, is that in the nature, there's three planks, plank number one. In the nature of the one God, that's plank number one, there's only one God. One what, if you will. There is three beings three who's, and the three beings are the one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Clearly in the Bible, all three of those are called God. All three of those display the attributes of God, creation, and giving life, and omniscience, knowing all things, omnipresence, being being everywhere at once. Um, We could go on, but all those characteristics are there. The third plank of the Trinity is important, and that's that the three are eternally distinct. What do you mean? I mean, it's not like Jesus became the Holy Spirit or the Father put on the Jesus costume and came to planet Earth. They are eternally distinct. How do you know? Because the Father sends the Son. We're about to read that the Father is going to, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He's going to ask the Father who will send the third person, the Holy Spirit, to indwell each believer. But what about the Father being greater? Does that mean the Father is better, that the Father is more God? Okay, this is a difference that is, uh, the best analogy is a marriage or a policeman. Have you heard either of these before, analogies? No? Okay, marriage, number one. In the Bible, if you read uh, Ephesians, I want to say five, but I could be wrong. could be Galatians. Anyway, there's talk about marriage. And what's prescribed is that the husband is to be the head of the household and the wives are to submit to the husband the same way they submit to the Lord. Does that mean that the husband is inherently in nature better or more? No, they're both human beings, right? There's no male or female at the cross, Galatians says. So what does it mean? It means that although they're the same in nature or essence, There's a difference in, listen, the roles that are played. Someone has to be the leader. God appoints the man to be the leader of the family. He is in no way better than the woman. Same thing with the policeman. He's a a homo sapiens, a human being, same as me. And yet, if he tells me to stop with the red light flashing, guess what? I can't say, you're the same as me, pal. I have to pull over, don't I? He can say stop in the name of the law and I have to stop. He's just the same as me in nature, but he plays a different role. At the time Jesus is saying this, he is a human being who has laid aside his divinity. He was God in heaven with God the Father, read John chapter one and elsewhere. He laid that all aside to come to earth to be one of us so he could die in our place. So he submits to the Father in everything. 
we'll see that come up in a second again. That's what it means that he's, the father is greater than he is. Keep your finger here and go over to John chapter 17. Just a few pages to the right. I want you to see something um, about this greater issue. I think it's verse, John 17 is Jesus praying to the father. Yeah, verse five. And now father, glorify me in your presence with, notice this, the glory I had with you before the world began. Do you know in the Old Testament, God says that he won't share his glory with anyone. And here's Jesus saying he had glory with the Father, shared glory with the God of the universe because he is God of the universe. So the greater thing is not a problem. Um, it's a position and role thing. Verse 29, I have told you now, he's telling the disciples, I've told you all this, I predicted all this, the persecution, the cross, I'm going away. I've told you all this now before it happens so that when it does happen, you'll believe. It's going to look like, Jesus is saying, I am a hapless, out of control victim who just gets arrested and can't stop it. I'm telling you ahead of time, so you'll know I knew it was going to happen. And as a matter of fact, I'm causing this to happen. This is the reason I'm here to die for your sins. In other words, what he's saying in verse 29 is that all these things I'm telling you are going to end up being prophecy that you're going to see come true in the next 48, 72 hours. It's all going to come down. The resurrection, the cross, the arrest, the betrayal of Judas, everything he's been predicting, he's showing them he's a prophet. The beauty of this is the Old Testament prophets, when they predicted stuff, it happened 600 years later, 200 years later. This is a matter of hours. Pretty amazing that they get to hear him say it. I'm telling you this so you'll, after it happens, verse 29, you'll believe. Verse 30, I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. That's the devil. We'll come back to that. He has no hold over me, NIV has. Okay, there's the devil. Why is he talking about the devil? He says, I won't say much more to you. In other words, what he's saying is time is very short. It's a matter of hours. He'll be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, the prince of this world is coming. Did you know that the devil is called the God, G-O-D, small G of this world? And I think it's first Corinthians or second, I can't remember. I think it's first. He's the God, small G of this world. He took control of the earth in a sense with limited power because God's still overarching power when Adam and Eve sinned. Since then, there's been death, disease, pain, sickness, crime. None of those things would be there if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned. He's the prince of this world. Since Adam and Eve, do you remember? Don't eat the fruit of the tree. The day you eat of it, you will surely die. Remember that? Adam and Eve eventually died. I believe they died spiritually when they ate the fruit, by the way. But in any case, my point is this. The prince of this world, he's saying, is coming. Translation, it's going to look in the hours that follow like the devil is going to win. He's going to kick my rear end, and it's going to look like, oh, no, he's winning. But all of this, of course, is for the purpose of saving you and me. He says, the prince of this world is coming, but here's the 
the main point of this verse. He has no hold over me. Translation, he's got nothing on me. He has no charge he can bring against me. Why does that matter? Because he never sinned, right? Follow this logic. The wages of sin is, Romans 6, death. Jesus is about to die. Oh, he must have been a sinner. Nope. The devil has no charge, nothing, no hold on me. Therefore, if I die, I lay down my own life. And that's what he says. Do you remember, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. He chooses the moment when he's going to die. And because he never sinned, it's no sweat for him to rise from the dead. So that's what he wants them to know. The devil is coming. He's got no hold over me. Verse 31, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. You say, what does that have to do with anything? What's he going to do? Suffer and die on the cross. Pay the horrible penalty for your sin and mine. The horrible death that you and I deserve. He says, I love you so much. I'm going to stand in your place and take that punishment. He's saying this so that you'll know and they'll know that he loves God, the Father, so much. He does exactly what he's commanded to do. And the Father commanded that Jesus die on the cross. So to the point of complete self-sacrifice, he's about to say, uh, okay, I'm willing to die. It's not the devil's victory. What it is is me obeying my father, what he's commanded me to do. Do we want to go there now? No, we're going to save that for later, I think. Let me see if it's in my notes. Um, how many know the story, A Tale of Two Cities? Anybody know that story? Um, we'll, we'll come back to it. I think it comes later in the notes. I don't see it here now. Uh, you would think the teacher would be a little more organized. Okay, uh, not so. In any case, um, so he's got no foothold in me. I've never sinned. There's no charge he can bring. He's got nothing on me. Remember that the devil tempted Jesus. Do you remember that? Uh, I think it's Luke 4, where he tempts him and, and offers him the kingdoms of the world is one of the things. According to these verses, he is the prince of this world. The devil could have offered him those if all Jesus would have done is bow down to and worship Jesus. And Jesus said, no way, of course, will I do that. Each time he was tempted, by the way, lesson for you and me, every time that the Lord Jesus was tempted, do you know what he did? He quoted scripture back to the devil. Where did he get that? He memorized it. He knew it. Of course, he's the author of scripture, so it's a little easier for him than it is for you or me. Okay, chapter 15. Um, little quick introduction. This is more prep for the disciples. This is uh, more reading of his will, in a sense. We're going to read about grapevines. I got to give you this background, or this isn't going to make a lot of sense, because there's a key word in verse one, and it's not the word you would think. Verse one is, I'm the true vine. My father is the gardener. Do you see that? The key word there, I'll tell you in a second. Let me tell you this first of all, history. Old Testament, Israel was called, there were several symbolic things for Israel. One was the fig tree. The other one is the vineyard or the vine. Israel was the vine. They are leaving um, the upper room and they're going to be walking and seeing as they walk uh, the Kidron Valley, they'll see the doors to the temple. 
probably closed because it's late at night. Above the door of the temple, made out of solid gold, was a huge vine symbolizing, listen, Israel in the Old Testament. You say, well, that's a nice story, but there's more. The fig tree is the main symbol of Israel. But whenever God is angry with Israel and thinks Israel is falling off the wagon and not obeying him and into pagan stuff and being disobedient, he talks about Israel as a vine that is not fruitful. Okay, the whole picture of a vine is one of dependence where the roots go down and the vine gets the nourishment from the ground and the branches have to stay attached. That's what this is going to be all about. So the key word in verse one is the word. Look at your notes. The key word is the word true. He doesn't say I'm the vine. He does later. But here he says, I want you to know I am the true vine. In parentheses, what he really means is, and not Israel. You say, wait, Israel was the vine, the connection between God and men. He's saying, no, Israel has failed at that. They have been unfruitful. As a result, we're going to see what will happen to those branches. He's saying, I am the true vine through which you will get your nourishment. Um, let me see my notes here if there's anything else in the uh, But this is, by the way, this is not a parable. It's called an extended metaphor. Do you remember when he said he was the good shepherd and we were his sheep? Same kind of thing. An analogy. That one is from you know, farming, farm animals kind of thing. This one is agriculture. Let's dive in. Are you still awake? Say amen. Amen. Okay, starting to fall asleep, I can tell. I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. So we know two of the characters already. There'll be more characters. But character number one is Jesus, who is the true vine of God. And the father, God the father, he calls him my father, is the vine dresser, if you have King James, I think it says, or the gardener. He's the caretaker of the vineyard of the vine. What did the caretaker do? He would trim the dead branches away, and he would prune very carefully the live branches that were bearing fruit so that they would bear even more fruit. So he's the true vine, not Israel. He's taking over that metaphor. Keep your finger where you are here in John. Go to Psalm 80. Psalms is roughly the middle of your Bible. Um, sometimes it's Isaiah or Proverbs, but if you go to Proverbs or Isaiah, take a left and go to Psalm 80. I just want to show you a couple. This is, there's a hundred of these in the Old Testament. I'm just going to show you a couple where God talks about Israel, the vine. I want you to notice it's almost always negative, hinting that something's going to be wrong. Look at Psalm 80, verse 8. Well, look at seven. Restore us, O God Almighty. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. He's talking to God. Then he says to God in verse eight, you, God, brought a vine out of Egypt. Remember, he took his people out of Egypt uh, in the Exodus. You drove out the nations and you planted it. Talking about the vine. It's clearly Israel. You cleared the ground for it and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered and what have you. Um, let's see. Keep reading. 
Its shoots went as far as the river, verse 11. Why have you broken down its walls so that all who pass by pick its grapes? Boars from the forest ravage it, and the creatures of the field feed on it. He's, there's something wrong. Watch over this vine. So one more, turn to the right a couple of books and go to Isaiah chapter 5, where there's even more said. Go to Isaiah 5. Uh, we'll just be here for a, a second. If you're not finding Isaiah, that's okay, but you won't get an A on the class. Just kidding. Isaiah 5, verses 1 and 2, and then verse 7. I will sing for the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with choicest vines. There's the father, the vine dresser, the gardener caring for the vineyard. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded what? Only bad fruit. Israel was supposed to be God's light to all the nations, but they had gotten into idolatry. They weren't obeying him and what have you. So that's just two examples. Go back to John chapter 15, if you will, with me. By the way, this is the last I am statement. There are seven I am statements in the gospel of John. I am the true vine. What are the other seven? The other six, sorry. He said he was the, listen, and each of these tells you something about him. He said in chapter six, he was the bread of life. You want real nourishment? Come to me, eat the bread. Um, he said he was the light of the world. He said he was the door or the gate, remember, to the sheepfold, the way in and out. He said he was the good shepherd. We talked about that at length, chapter 10. He said he was the resurrection and the life. He himself was. All these hinting about what he is and what he's going to do. He said he was the way, the truth, and the life, chapter 14. And then this one, he's the true vine. Israel had been unfruitful and was transfer, God was transferring the vinehood, if you will, to a person named Jesus Christ, God's son. What does a vine speak of in terms of the branches? Total dependence. Imagine if I had brought in tonight a branch that I had cut off, and it had green leaves on it, and I said, this is a branch from one of my vines at my house. How do you think it's going to look in two weeks? It'll be dead. It's really dead now, right? But it still looks green. How about six months from now? All the leaves would have fallen off. Would you expect if I held this branch up any fruit to start appearing? Why not? Well, it's just illogical. It's not connected vitally to the vine from which it gets the life as well as the nourishment. So it's a, a really good picture of our absolute dependence. That's what he's going to build on in this whole chapter, that we have to be so connected to him that we don't show up and visit Jesus or have him visit us now and then, that it's sort of an abiding lifestyle. We'll get into that more in a second. Total dependence, total constant connection. That's what he wants you to remember. Um, also, that vines don't just grow on their own right? If I planted vines at my house, they'd all be dead. Do you know why? Because if I didn't put drip lines in or water them, especially in the summer, forget it. They'd be dead. Someone would have to water them, care for them, get insects off them, trim it, all of that. That's what he's talking about here. There are other vines on planet earth. 
You say, what are you talking about? I mean, he's to be our vine from which we get our nourishment, our strength, our life. Some people put all their stock in, all their hope in other vines. What do you mean? Like money, like prestige, like possessions, like sex, like um, a PhD after their name. How many know what PhD stands for? Piled higher and deeper. Okay, sorry. I had to throw that in. Some people put their, their, all their eggs in the basket of popularity or of fame or of accomplishments. None of those things will satisfy. Jesus Christ is the one to whom we have to be connected. I'm the true vine, not Israel. My father's the gardener. By the way, could you think of a better gardener than God the Father? Okay, but it's going to hurt before we're done. Verse 2, he cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it'll be more fruitful. We just learned something. Two kinds of branches. In this living vine, there are branches that are growing, that are there, connected, but they're bearing no fruit. Other branches are bearing fruit. The difference is, the question is, what's the fruit? I'm going to leave that for a moment. I want you to think about it. What's the fruit that God looks for that he didn't find in Israel, that he doesn't find in some people who say they're Christians? What just occurred within an hour before this is Judas split. Do you remember? He is being pictured here primarily, but there's more. It's all people who say, oh, no, yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh, well, you used to have a problem with stealing. Well, the yeah, I still steal. And you had a problem with lust, I think. Yeah, still got it. And drugs, you still, oh, yeah. No fruit. Hmm, your life's the same. Yeah, exactly. But I believe, does he? With birth, born again, comes growth, right? If I showed you a baby and you said, oh, what a cute little baby. How old is the baby? And I said, 14 years old. You'd go, something's wrong. Not growing. Goo goo gaga. He's spitting up on you. Oh, look at that. Something's wrong, right? These are people with a said faith as opposed to a real faith. Judas was a counterfeit Christian. He never believed. So God, the gardener, end of verse one, cuts off every branch that bears no fruit. You say, is that judgment? Yes. Skip down to verse six. Um, if you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. Does that sound good to anybody? Sounds like hell to me. Fire is a picture of judgment of hell in the Bible. Go back to verse two. So he cuts off, and I mean radically cuts off those branches. He just dismissed Judas. What you're going to do, do quickly. Get lost, basically. Bye-bye, he says. And Judas leaves. He cuts off every branch that bears no fruit. Why is that? Because you don't grow vines to get firewood. It doesn't make good firewood. You don't grow vines to get the wood to build houses. They don't build houses out of grape 
vine wood. It's not good wood for that. You know what it's good for? Making grapes. God uses us to bear fruit, but if they're not bearing fruit, they are useless and a waste to God. And they're even detrimental to the grapevine branches that do bear fruit because some of the nourishment is going to these branches that aren't bearing fruit. Jesus is teaching, giving them nourishment spiritually, and Judas isn't hearing a word of it, really. So he cuts them off, the ones that don't bear fruit. And second half of verse two, while every branch that does bear fruit, if you're thinking he's going to say, I leave those alone, those ones are doing good. Nope. He cuts those too, just not as harshly. Every branch in me, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. If you know anything about fruit trees or grapevines, you can have a fruit tree that's going to make pears, right? A pear tree. And you've just got branches loaded with pears. My father used to really be good at this. He had every conceivable vegetable growing in the ground and every conceivable fruit tree. And I'm not exaggerating uh, at his house in San Jose, two and a half acres they had in the hills of San Jose, every conceivable one. And he would show me that you can't just let all these live. Well, they're pears. It looks good to me. If you do, you're going to end up with a bunch of little tiny pears. So you have to choose and cut off some branches, prune the ones that are bearing fruit, so that instead of 300 tiny pears, you might get 40 really good pears. God knows how to prune each of, our, each of us. Okay. So who's the true vine? Jesus. Who's the gardener? Yes, we get it, Joe. God the Father. Wait. Who are the branches? You. Me. All human beings. All? All. Two categories. The ones that don't bear fruit, he cuts those off judgment day after they die or when Christ returns. The ones that do bear fruit, Christians. Well, you still haven't answered what's fruit. I'm getting there but he's cutting, pruning lightly us in our lives. Now, I know that the conventional wisdom is that a tree being a, a living thing, but not human or animal, can't feel pain. There are some studies that say that when you cut a branch off, the tree can feel it. Okay. What are you saying, Joe? I'm saying ladies and branches, branches and branches, that's you and me, that God loves us so much and wants us to bear fruit so much that we're already bearing fruit, we're believers, but there are some things in Joe's life that God says, that's sucking away his energy, that's sapping him and distracting him from what I want him to do. I'm going to clip off that branch. What's that little, what's the little twig that he's clipping off? I'll tell you, it could be a person. Have you noticed it's easier to be a Christian around certain people and harder around others? Just natural. Go out with your drinking buddies and no, I'm not going to drink and I'm going to be a Christian here. And it's just, I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. I'm just saying it's way harder. He might clip your life of people that are sapping your energy. He might clip your life and you go, oh no, I lost my job. But a new job, whatever he replaces that with, whatever he takes from you is always better. 
you'll produce more fruit. He takes away whatever's sapping your energy. Do you have an alcohol or a drug problem or a dr or a vision problem, meaning what you're putting in your eye gate and your ear gate, TV, movies, internet, isn't God honoring. He may clip your tree and put it in your mind that I shouldn't be watching this. Let's turn this off kind of thing. He prunes us, every branch that bears fruit, so that it'll be even more fruitful. Okay, Joe, you kept us in suspense long enough. What's fruit? Okay, now there's a lot of definitions for fruit. The main one in this context might surprise you, and it's this, righteousness, obedience, obeying God in what he says in his word. That's fruit. That is exactly what we were made to do. Because when we live that kind of a life, we're bringing glory, pointing it back to God the Father. Um, oh, I forgot to mention something. I'll tell you at the end. Um, so what else is fruit? Well, you could say fruit is converts. So-and-so is a very fruitful Christian, really. Yes, she goes to the park and witnesses to people there, and she's brought five or six people to church that are now Christians that were not interested at all before. That's fruit. What else is fruit? Fruit is the fruits of the Spirit, right? Remember that? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What are those? Those are characteristics all of them are good. Those are characteristics that make your Christianity and mine, listen, contagious in a good way, not in a COVID way, in a good way. You don't want to wear a mask from that. Those are the kind of things that people see and say, I, I want to be, look how patient he is, how, how loving she is, how joyous she is, how peaceful. I want those things. We are not ever to judge. He's saved. She's not He's totally not. She might be, but I don't think so. It's not my prerogative. But we are told by Jesus, you will know them by their fruits. And he even says a good tree produces good fruit. So somebody may act like a Christian, but you look at their life and you say, I don't know if I see fruit in that life, though. I see a bunch of arguments going on. He's starting and or she's starting. And I don't see a lot of Christian fruit. Fruit is the reason we're here. We bear fruit as we are connected to the vine, but he'll have a lot, lot more to say about that. Let's keep rolling, shall we? Okay. Verse three, you are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Isn't that kind of an oxy? You go, what? Where did that come from? We're talking about vines here, vine dressers, fruit. You're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. What he's saying there is, I've already pruned you. The word for pruning and the word for cleaning is the same Greek word. He's saying, because of what I've been teaching you, I've already been pruning away things unbeknownst to you. One thing about pruning, it can be a little painful to lose something. That I really used to like to do that and play golf for nine hours every Sunday and God's showing me, he's, I'm pruning that out of your life now. He may have to prune it by wrecking my hip to where I can't swing a golf club anymore. And I, okay, I go to church with my wife. The point is pruning can be painful, but whatever he takes away, he already 
is giving you something better. He says to them, you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Here's an interesting connection. The word, the word of God in the book of Hebrews is called a double-edged cutting tool. Cutting tool? Sword, right? With which you could lop off an entire branch or gently prune one that's already bearing fruit. We are the branches, he's about to tell us. I'm still looking at notes here. Uh, we won't go into that right now. Um, so the father lovingly prunes us and connects us uh, to one another and to that vine. Let's keep reading. Um, now, verse four, and I want to, with your permission, I want to read from four all the way to 11. And then we'll talk about each verse. I want you to see the whole enchilada before we take a bite. And by the way, then we'll take our two minute break and some of you all have to go wake up. Okay, verse four, remain in, those of you that laughed, you're already awake, that's good. Remain in me or abide in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you abide or remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Now he explains what I told you earlier. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Just like my branch I brought in from the vines, nothing. It's not connected. There'll be no more fruit here. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse six, if you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. This is to my father's glory, verse eight, that you bear much fruit showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Now abide, live in, remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love just as I've kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. There's a connection to obedience. Did you see it? Keeping commands. I've told you this so that my joy, remember it was peace before? Now he's bequeathing to them. They're going to inherit his joy that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full or complete. Now, let's take our two-minute break. I'm going to turn my screen off. I'll be right back. This is so you can stretch your aging body. Well, I'll be back in two minutes. Don't go far. Whoops. All right, we're back. Find your seats back there, if you will. We're still in uh, John chapter 15. And... So now let's take these verses apart one at a time, starting in verse four. So the word is abide or remain. It means to dwell in. He's telling us that what we need to do is remain in him, abide in him, live in him. What are you talking about? Here's what I'm talking about. Um, occasionally, I visit Fresno, and then I come home. 
that's not abiding. I just go there for something. I can't wait to get out. And I go home, right? Traffic, and I'm so used to the mountains. Um, I occasionally go to the beach. I like the beach. I don't live on the beach. He's saying, live in me, moment by moment, absolute being conscious of his presence in your life, that he's with you, he's watching you, he loves you. Every decision, every attitude is all based on the fact that we are living moment by moment with him. It, it is not something you visit now and then, or he gets to visit you. It is a, a abiding, living in him, remain or dwell in him. Some people hang around Jesus a little and then go live a different life and then come back to Jesus. That's not what he wants. He wants the more we abide in him, listen, the more fruit we're going to bear. That's what he's saying. Just like the branch and the vine analogy I gave you where um, a vineyard is, a vine is producing on these branches. If we cut one of the branches off, and the branch goes over there with no roots, no connection to the vine, there will be zero fruit. And that will end up dying and being burned. So remain in me, but note, notice it's mutual abiding as I remain in you. He stays inside of us, doesn't he? The beauty of Christianity is that God lives inside of us. We talked about this last week, not just the Holy Spirit, but Christ in you, the hope of glory, the Father and he come and make their abode in him. Verse 23 of that last chapter says, he lives inside of us. The beautiful thing is, if you're truly his, he won't let you get too far away. He'll convict you of that and make you so miserable in that or the life that you'll want to come back and you'll miss the abiding fellowship, if you will. Remain in me, verse four, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. That's why I gave you the analogy of the cutoff branch that I'm holding up. It's not connected to anything. Impossible. It has to be connected. Same with us. We want to be the branch connected to him that bears fruit. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. So there's that vital connection. Christianity is not a hobby. It's not one thing on your top 10. God says, crown me or kill me. There's nothing in between. Jesus came to the earth. Some have crowned him. Most voted crucify him. Verse five, um, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Here it comes. Apart from me, you can do very little. Is that what it says? Nothing. Good one, Kay. Nothing. How can that be, you say? I know of atheists who do nice things and go to orphanages. And by the way, how many of you could name a few atheist charities? Go ahead, I'll wait. There aren't that many, right? Most hospitals, most charities started out as Christian, right? Are you aware that virtually every college in the United States started out as a Christian organization, including, by the way, Yale, Harvard, like amazing that now they're so godless, they started out Christian. What's your point, Joe? Apart from Jesus, you can do nothing, listen, of any eternal consequence, nothing spiritually. Forget it. You can go do, you can say, renounce Christianity and leave the church and throw your Bible away. And then you can go do 
feed the homeless. And you know what? That's great. But in terms of lasting effect, spiritual good, you can do nothing apart from Jesus Christ. Because you certainly can't bring anybody to him if you're not in him as well. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Just like the branch of the, the cutoff branch of the vine, if you will. Verse six, if you do not remain in me, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned like Judas, like all who came before him and after him who said they believed and had a said faith and not a real faith. Uh, we'll see before too long some other elements of that whole faith thing. Do you remember uh, Matthew chapter 7? Jesus says a shocking thing. Somebody said it to me on the phone the other day, quoted the scripture, where Jesus says that in time of judgment, a strange thing is going to happen. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many other good works in your name? And I will say, do you remember? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. You hung around the church. You hung around Christianity. You said all the terms. God bless you. Praise God. Amen. And I never knew you. That's a scary thing. He doesn't say they didn't do anything that they thought they did. He just says, I never knew you. Does that matter? That's the same thing as abiding. He's saying you were never vitally connected to this vine ever. I never knew you. This sounds weird to say because as a culture, we don't like to hear this, but let's face it, in business, in show business, in sports, to some degree, it's who you know. How did you get front row tickets to the Super Bowl? I know a guy, right? It's who you know. Heaven's the same way. It's who you know. Jesus, yes or no? Well, I know about him. Do you know him? Are you abiding in the vine? That's what he's saying here, that if we don't know him, if we don't remain in him, we're like that branch that's thrown away and burned. So then there's a fringe benefit that is just incredible in verse seven. Do you see it? If you remain in me or abide in me and my words remain in you, notice there's the vital connection. You know his word and you keep it. You remember it in your in your being, you, you live your life according to it. If you remain in me, verse seven, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. What's he talking about? Prayer. Okay, it sounds like a blank check. I like this. Ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. Is that what it says? Well, partially, but you took the verse out of context. We could make that a bumper sticker. Ask whatever you wish, and it'll be done for you, period. No. What does it say in context? Because there's a, an advisory there, a condition. If you remain in me, 
if you are living your life remaining in under God's umbrella, in other words, of obedience, of obeying his commands, obeying his word, keeping his word means obeying his word. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, in that case, what you're going to pray for is precisely what God wants. How do you know that? Because you're going to pray the Lord's prayer. And the central phrase we always say in the Lord's prayer is, my will, no. What is it again? Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come, your will be done. In 1 John 5, we quoted this last week. You don't, you don't have to turn there now. It's around verse 15 or 14. It says, if we ask anything and it be in accordance with his will, we know that we have the thing that we ask for. The more you abide, you will find that what you're asking for is totally his will, not give me three Mercedes and a Rolex. But does a Christian pray for that stuff? Or does a Christian pray, God, give me patience to deal with this person who's driving me crazy. I really want him to come to faith in Jesus, but help me to love him the way you love him. That the Christians, you might hear that and say, well, you don't get anything out of that. Where's the Mercedes? Where's the... It's God's will. You can see there's a vital connection there. It's like the grape branch praying for pears or apples. It's not the will, right? It would be grapes, God's fruit in that case. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, how important it is for us to be studying God's word daily. Stay in it. Um, yeah, we already talked about that. Um, turn to John 14, 13. So that's like a page, a page and a half back. 14, 13. And I will do whatever you ask in my name. We talked about that last week. Do you remember? It doesn't mean every prayer you have to say, in Jesus' name. There, I said the magic mantra. It means if you ask in his name, you're asking according to his will, according to his character, what he would want. So that the son may, listen, be, bring glory to the father. Is my prayer going to bring glory to the father? Yes, if I have patience with this person and can witness to them effectively, that will bring glory to the father. Would three Mercedes and a Rolls Royce and a Rolex watch bring glory to the father? No, that'd bring glory to me. What's the motive for my prayer? We're asking ourselves. Okay, go back to the text. Um, if you remain, okay, yeah, whatever you wish, it'll be done for you because you're vitally connected. You're not going to pray for stuff that aren't his will. Verse eight, this is, this sounds just like what we just read in 14, 13. This is to my father's glory so that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. What he's saying there is a defining characteristic for, am I a disciple of Jesus Christ? You can answer that question by answering this one. Are you bearing fruit for the kingdom of God? Are you abstaining from sin more and more and repenting of sin more and more? Are you doing more and more good? Are you studying the Bible less and less or more and more? Are you praying more and more or less and less? More than you're bearing fruit. I'm obeying more than I used to. Like I said, with birth, comes growth. I've been a Christian 14 years. I got all my same vices. I still drink. I still use drugs. I still cheat on my wife. What? All these years later, something's wrong. Are you sure you're vitally connected to the vine? This is to my father's glory 
Think of the Father's glory as the sunshine. Okay, got the picture? The sun is a strange thing, isn't it? it without the sun, we have no life on planet Earth. S-U-N. Well, S-O-N too. S-U-N, right? And yet, you learn when you're a little kid, right? Don't look at it. Isn't that interesting? It's so bright, you'll go blind if you look at the sun. But we are to reflect the light of the sun like the moon does, so that others see our good works and glorify our Father, which is in heaven. That is the reason you and I are here on planet Earth, so that people see your life and go, he's so giving, he's so selfless, and God gets the glory. Now, what's involved in that is what I call deflecting compliments. This will be in the sermon. I'm giving the sermon here Sunday, by the way. So this would be a good week to take a vacation. Anyway, it's part, one of my points is deflecting comment, compliments. What do you mean? I mean, oh, Patricia, you have such a lovely home. And she says, we've been very blessed, better than we deserve. And I say to Chris, you've done so many kind things for my family and for my daughter. And he says, I wouldn't have done any of it if God didn't, you know, move me to care. And in other words, it's not, thank you. Yes, I am pretty cool, aren't I? It's, I give all the glory to God. I love in a Super Bowl and Olympics, a, a World Series, when someone hits the home run. Is that football or baseball? Oh, the home run. And we were just talking sports, weren't we? Someone hits the winning home run in the World Series and they win game seven and they stick a microphone in his face and he, and he says, and they say, how does it feel? You just won the game for the whoever. And the guy says, I just want to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He gave me the ability to do these things. You may watch that and go, oh, come on. The guy worked his butt off for 20 years working out, watching film of his swing and practicing and practicing. That's all true. He did. But who gave the guy the talent, the time, the health to be able to do it, the abilities, and who moved the chess pieces of his life so that he could be in this position? How awesome that the guy hits the home run and goes, to God be the glory. You ever see people score touchdowns and they point up? Stephen Curry of the Golden State Warriors, every time he makes a basket, does this. And they've asked him about it, and he says, I'm just praising God for the ability and that I made another basket. Okay, let's see if there's a Warriors game on and we'll watch it. No, let's keep moving. Sorry. Um, okay, bearing much fruit. How are we doing on time? We're doing great. Are you still awake? Say amen. 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 Okay. <laughs> it does. It starts really loud. Did you ever notice that? Six o'clock. Amen. 7.15. Amen. Okay. Um, let's see. The glory goes to him. We can get enamored with our own fruit and think it's me. I'm a great branch. That's not biblical. The branch is connected to the vine. That's the only reason we're bearing fruit. Verse 10. Is that where we are? Nine. So as the father has loved me, verse nine says, so I have loved you. Now, abide or remain in my love. What we learn here is this is not, you're in the army, I'm the colonel, you're the private, just do it and shut up. 
This is not what Christianity is. It's not a tyrant king whipping his slaves, making them obey. There is tremendous love in Christianity that you is absent from if you study them, Buddhism, Hinduism, all other major religions. The reason for that is God knows that love is a way greater, way greater, a greater motivator for good conduct than anything else. If I whipped you, I could make you do something. But if you love me and, I, and you know I love you and I ask you to do it, you'll do it. And I don't have to get the whip out, do I? Right? He wants them to know, verse 9, in the same way that the Father has loved Jesus, he's shown them the same love. Well, what has he done? Well, he's taught them, he's protected them, he's fed them on several occasions, saved them from a storm or two by quieting the wind and the waves. Um, he has blessed them in so many ways. Now he's saying, that's what I want you to remain in. Not me whipping you, remain in my absolute love. The thing that will soften a heart more than anything is that kind of relationship. No, we're not there yet. I keep looking for where in my notes it's on the next page. A tale of two cities. Can you tell I'm excited about telling you about this? How many know about a tale of two cities? I think I only saw one hand. Okay, one, two, three, four. Okay, good. Um, verse 10, remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love, just as I've kept my father's commands and remain in his love. Ah, there's the key. Obedience. Oh, does it have to be? Yes. Now, listen, you mean obedience to his commands? I do. Okay, so now we're back to the general in the army or the colonel or whatever it was I said, whipping his men into shape and yelling, barking commands like a drill sergeant. No. Listen, what will soften your heart about this is that God's greatest showing of love outside of the cross, heard something, um, was, listen, his commands. You mean like the Ten Commandments? Absolutely. That's the greatest show of love. Because everything God forbids in his commands are, is all stuff that will wreck your life. Don't be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. What do you mean? He's trying to protect you. How many people do you know whose lives have been messed up by alcohol, if not ruined or ended by alcohol? Everything God is telling you in his word, don't do that, is for your own good. It's the parent saying, now, honey, the stove is hot. Don't touch it right? What do you do that for? To be Mr. Tyrant or Miss Tyrant in the kitchen? No, it's for the kid's own good. If he's dumb enough to disobey you, ah, he gets burned, right? In the same way, everything he commands us to do positively, there's negative commands, don't do this, thou shalt not, right? Everything he commands us to do positively is also for our own good, just like a mother. Make sure you eat your vegetables, Joey. Uh, for your own good, for your own health, drink enough water, honey, all those things. God is the absolute greatest, most loving being you can imagine. And his law has all of that behind it. These guys, uh, it's going to be hard for them because it's going to look like he's a defeated Messiah. 
They thought he was the Messiah and they were wrong. He wants them to know I'm in control. My father's loved me. This is all for you. The ultimate showing of his love, of course, is him dying for the sins of the world, dying for these guys that are even going to desert him shortly. But verse 10, I can't stress it enough. Obedience is the key. Now, you can't obey if you don't read the word because you don't know what the commands are, right? Not just the Ten Commandments, all the commands of Jesus. By the way, in these chapters, do you know the command he repeats again and again and again and again and again? As I've loved you, love one another. That's going to be important because they're going to be persecuted. They're going to be scattered. They're, going to, they, they're very selfish. Remember, before he washes their feet, they're arguing over which one of them is the greatest. I think it's me. I think I'm the greatest. Sounds like Muhammad Ali, right? I am the greatest. If you keep my commands, you'll remain in my love for their own good. Just as I've kept my father's commands right down to dying, by the way, and I remain in his love. Verse 11, I've told you this so that my joy, peace, love, joy. He's letting them inherit what he has. My joy, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Are they feeling joyful right now? No. Jesus is leaving. He says he's going to die. Judas is gone. Peter's going to deny him. Is this whole thing over? We gave three years of our lives. What? He's telling them you can have true joy even in the midst of suffering or persecution or great loss. Listen, what's joy? We've talked about this before in this Bible study. It's the same as happiness. No, no, no. It's totally different. Happiness is an emotion. Happiness is from the, in, the English word happenstance, meaning from what happens to me, that determines whether I'm happy or not. What happened today? Well, today I had a good day. I'm happy. Tomorrow, I might have a really bad day and get in a car accident or get sick or lose someone that I love or find out some bad news. And now I'm sad, happy, sad, happy, sad. It's a roller coaster. Happiness is an emotion. Joy is not an emotion. It's a settled disposition that regardless of what happens, you know, God loves me. My future is absolutely glorious. I am forgiven and restored in my relationship with the God of the universe. What do I have to worry about? If God be for us, who can be against us? It's a settled disposition where I can lose my happiness, but despite the car accident or the broken leg or the poison oak or the cancer diagnosis or the losing of a dear friend or whatever it may be, or I lost my money, I can't find my wallet, I still have the joy because I'm still abiding in God in Christ, day by day, moment by moment. I've told you all this stuff so that you'll be happy, that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full or totally complete. People search for happiness everywhere. And what they ought to be searching for is Christian joy. I've said this before. Here's another sports analogy from my sports buddies over there. If the score of your life in a baseball game, feels like 19 to 2, and you're losing, everything's going wrong. I just feel like, uh, you know, I'm just so bummed out. Listen, biblically, I can tell you categorically that you're the end of your game 
by the time the ninth inning is over and you pass on or Christ returns, I can tell you right now, the final score will be 300 to 19. You win big time because God wins because you're abiding in him. The future is glorious for all believers. That's where the joy comes from, from abiding in him, from obedience. My command, verse 12, is this, love each other as I have loved you. There it is again. He said it over and over. Love each other. Okay, this is another thing. Love is not an emotion. We say this a lot, I know. How do I know? Because if it was, you couldn't command somebody to feel an emotion. You either feel it or you don't. I just don't feel loving toward her or him. If love is commanded, then it must be a verb, something you just do. Whether you hate her or love her, you're going to be nice to her. Do good things to her. Pray for her. When you do that, in response to his command, you know what happens? You end up becoming fond of her. You can't help it. I'm doing all these. And she will for you. And stop being a jerk. Sorry to point at you. I would make it this lady over here when there's nobody there. Okay. Um, okay. Here's the verse I've been wanting to get to. Love each other as I have loved you. Um, that means the unlovable loving those people. You know who they are. You may be looking at me kind of funny right now. The unlovable, you have to love even more. My mother used, my mother taught me when I was younger, when someone was being a jerk to me, in fact, it was the kid that lived next door to us when we lived in North Andover, Massachusetts. He was such a jerk to me and uh, was kind of a bully, actually. My mother said, when someone's a jerk to you, look at their forehead. And I thought, okay, mom's starting to lose it now. What do you mean forehead? And she said, imagine that you see the letters, I need love. Because that's why he's a jerk. And they did have a screwed up family, that house next door. He was a jerk. And he said, my mother said, that's the person you need to love even more, not less, even the unlovable. In a Christian context, guess who the unlovable is? You, me, in terms of God. We weren't such great catches when he saved us. We didn't love him when we were unsaved. He loved us anyway. He died for us. It makes it easier to love. Okay, verse 13. And then, as promised, a tale of two cities. The whole story in two or three minutes. Okay. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You must admit, that's the greatest gift, the greatest sacrifice someone could offer you. I could say, I'll give you all my money. That's pretty good. Or I'll give you my house or my car or my guitar or whatever. But to lay down your life, the whole basis for your existence, he's saying that's what he does, does to show his love for us. He lays down his life in our place. A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. You're saying you've been selling this. It better be good. Okay. It's the story of two guys, Charles and Sidney. And they both are in love with the same woman whose name is Lucy. Got the picture? Charles and Sidney both love Lucy. Lucy chooses Charles, not Sidney. The two men have very little in common, except in the story, they 
bear such a physical resemblance, height, weight, facially, they look so much alike, it's uncanny. Got the picture? But she chose Charles, not Sidney. Years later, during the French Revolution, Charles, who Lucy married, is thrown in prison and sentenced to die by the guillotine on a certain day. For those of you from Awani, that means getting your head cut off, right? Just kidding. Um, Charles is going to die in the, getting his head cut off in the guillotine. Sydney, who lost out and didn't have Lucy, Charles won her love. Sydney comes to visit Charles in prison. And he pitches to Charles, listen, you're married. Lucy's going to miss you. Let me take your place. And Charles says, you're crazy. No, there's no way. Sydney has come in there with a few other friends. And Sydney, knowing Charles's character, knows Charles isn't going to go for it. So he drugs Charles, who's about to die on the guillotine. And Charles passes out from the drugs. They exchange clothing so that Sydney now is in the prisoner uniform, posing as Charles. He's going to, wait for it, die for him in his place. Do you see the connection? Charles, who's unconscious, is now in Sydney's clothes, and the friends who know about this cart him out and tell the guards, oh, he must have had too much to drink or something. We'll get rid of him. And they put him on a carriage, and he's headed to Lucy's house where they're going to drop him off and he will be free. In the prison across the hall there of the cells is a young girl who's a seamstress also supposed to die and scared out of her minds. She witnesses the whole thing and realizes and says to Sydney, my God, are you dying for him? It touches her so much that she reaches out and says, if you'll hold my hand, I can get through this. She's about to die. That kind of love will melt your heart. Sydney goes to the guillotine. And just before his head is chopped off in place of Charles, he says, uh, he whispers, I am the resurrection and the life, and his life ends. What a picture of Jesus Christ dying for you. If that doesn't melt your heart, if that doesn't change you enough to want to give him everything, even my obedience, even your obedience, then you don't understand how much love was exchanged on that cross a long time ago. His gold, righteousness, for your garbage, sin, guilt, you can't find a better deal than that, even at Costco. So that's a tale of two cities. There's going to be a test on that. So I hope you took notes. Just kidding. Um, all right. We're going to quit in a second here, but we're going to keep going. Um, are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay. No, now you're, now you're awake. <laughs> okay. Go back to verse 13. I have to read it again now that you've heard a tale of two cities. 
Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. May I ask, how good of friends were these guys to Jesus? Not good. Constantly not obeying him, constantly bickering about who's the greatest. Within an hour or two, they're all going to desert him and Peter's going to deny him. Not good. You would think he would say, all right, I'm getting rid of all 11 of you. I'll find some other guys. Loves them. Loves them in spite of who and what they are. Because he knows when the Holy Spirit of God's going to come into them in the book of Acts, he's going to change them from the inside out and blow the lid off this whole world to where centuries later, Christianity is the biggest religion in the world. Two and a half billion believers. Greater love, there's no greater love than this. If he gave that much for you, can't you give him your time, your talent, your treasure, your obedience? Let's um, keep going. 14. So we're his friends. That's cool. Look at 14. You are my friends if you do what I command. Oh, so we're earning our salvation by obedience. Wrong. You got the equation backwards. Your salvation is proved by the evidence that you are obeying him, because that goes all the way back to the vine and the fruit, because obedience is the fruit that proves that we're his and that we're saved. The other thing about fruit is if you know someone and the jerk that they are, and they become a Christian and change radically, you know it wasn't Harry that changed himself something changed Harry from outside him or went inside him and changed him. And that's the gospel. It changes lives in an amazing way. Okay. We're going to close with prayer. Um, uh, um, if you're completely bored on Sunday, I'm preaching right behind me, that podium there, scared out of my mind at 10 a.m. is when the service starts. Um, and the, the subject matter I was given is, by the way, Thanksgiving, just in general. Um, so that's what that will be. Um, Sue O'Connor is going to come up in a second. So those of you that are here, please stay here. I'm going to sign off of Zoom in a second. I read earlier for you, those of you on Zoom, we're, we're, what we're going to be talking about is the school choice um, initiative. There are petitions where this is a really important thing in our country uh, for Christian education and for education in general. Go to californiaschoolchoice.org, those of you on Zoom, if you want to learn more about it or email me if you forget that, californiaschoolchoice.org. If we can get this on the ballot, it would make a huge difference. And instead of having to take your kids to public school um, the money, the $14,000 per student can go to the parents, which can be used for private school, Christian school, homeschooling, a, a bunch of different ways it can be done. But we got to sign the petitions and get the word out. Let's close with prayer. Um, those of you that are here, please don't leave because Sue's going to come up and just talk for, you know, 20 seconds, right, Sue? Uh, you know, three or four minutes. Um, anyway, let's pray. Thank you all for being here on Zoom. God bless you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these lessons. Thank you for that peace that you give us, the joy that's yours that you give us, God, and the love that you've shed abroad in our hearts. Help us to have no fear, but to walk by faith, to abide in you, to obey you in every way, Father. Help us to be vitally connected to you as our vine, the one thing that fulfills us, feeds us, and leads us to 
bear fruit for your kingdom and for your glory, God. We give you thanks for this time we can spend together, and we pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for being here on Zoom. Those of you that are here, come on up, Sue, and I'm going to sign off on Zoom. God bless you all. Thanks for being here.